I'm Alex Mosad, and welcome to Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle to fight back and win against big tech monopolies. A few great topics today. Sequoia has announced what they call the, you know, a crucible moment. This is a game-changing moment, as uh, as Sequoia would describe it, for the venture capital industry, taking a classic knock against VCs not being able to innovate, even though they're investing in all this innovation. They believe they have found that truly disruptive model. We're going to talk about that. And some of the interesting parallels that I think it shares with AngelList. Rent the Runway is public, uh, not a platform. Stock is not doing so hot. We're going to dig into that. And then there's a couple themes here around this convergence between linear e-commerce and marketplaces. And how can even just linear businesses and platform businesses work more closely with one another? I got a couple examples uh, of, of marketplaces around retailers, around then value-added services into marketplaces. And I think, you know, it's a, a really great perspective of seeing how both sides of the aisle can, can work together to both benefit their own respective models and share, share synergies. So uh, first topic is the Sequoia News. The Sequoia Fund, patient capital for building enduring companies. Ironically, innovations in venture capital haven't kept pace with the companies we serve. Our industry is still beholden to a rigid 10-year fund cycle from the 1970s. It's actually not even everyone even has a 10-year fund cycle. Sometimes VCs have like a seven-year fund cycle. Why Sequoia has an issue with that is because they say 10-year fund cycle has become obsolete. They talk about examples where it just takes a long time for these large tech companies, many of them platforms, to reach critical mass to get that winner-take-all scale. In recent years, many of our most promising companies have chosen to stay private longer, building scale and expanding their strategic footprint before debuting as public market leaders. They then compound their advantage for decades, with much of their value accruing long after an IPO. Square, for instance, which we partnered with, that means they invested, in early 2011, had a market cap of $2.9 billion when they IPO'd in 2015. Five years later, Square grew to $86 billion and today is worth over $117. So there's a little chart, not in this article, but in this article. Uh, this is from PitchBook. They do a good job saying, Sequoia portfolio companies with, the most, with most valuation growth following IPO. This is to... You know, put some numbers against uh, Roloff, who's one of the main partners there at Sequoia. So for Maituan, they exited. This is actually their biggest, you know, their their biggest home run. Maituan Dianping in China, food delivery and and ride sharing space. Exit value of forty eight point six billion dollars. Current market cap of two hundred twenty six billion dollars. This is the exit value when they IPO'd versus the current market cap. So, you know, IPO'd at 48.6, now worth 226 billion. ServiceNow, IPO at 2 billion, now worth 136 billion square. This was the example Roloff gave, 2.7 IPO, now worth over 120. Snowflake, IPO 29, now at over 100 billion. Zoom, IPO at 8.9, now over 80 billion. You know what Roloff is saying, hey, Hey, a lot of these companies are staying private longer. We've seen that huge influx of, you know, hedge fund capital and growth stage capital 
to 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 put massive fundraises into these companies before going public. Then once they do go public, they still have you know many years to take advantage of the competitive advantage that they've built. A ten-year fund horizon limits Sequoia's ability to, um, well, you know, as they would say, act as the best partner with the tech startup, um, but also, somewhat more importantly, to get the best return on their money for both themselves as GPs as well as, uh, you know, for their investors, their LPs. So, what is Sequoia proposing to do? They have now said that basically. We are going to have one massive fund. We are breaking with the traditional organization based on fund cycles and restructuring Sequoia Capital around a singular permanent structure called the Sequoia Fund. And basically, our LPs will invest into the Sequoia Fund, an open-ended liquid portfolio made up of public positions in a selection of our enduring companies. The Sequoia Fund will in turn allocate capital to a series of closed-end sub-funds for venture investments at every stage from inception to IPO. Well, I'm going to break that down, so don't worry. Proceeds from these venture investments will flow back into the Sequoia Fund in a continuous feedback loop. Investments will no longer have expiration dates. Our sole focus will be to grow value for our companies and limited partners over the long run. So what does this mean? Basically, if you are now an investor in Sequoia, you are not invested in fund one, fund two, fund three that has a specific strategy that's focusing, you know, on a specific vertical or a specific theme, et cetera. You are now just instead investing into one massive roll up called the Sequoia Fund and you can exit and enter that fund with Sequoia having to worry less about when it's going to exit its positions in its, particularly its private investments as a result of its investors coming in or coming out of the, the, the mega fund, right? Obviously, there's a lot more detail to it than what they're disclosing here. But what this is doing is this is giving their portfolio managers uh, that are managing the closed-end vertical-specific funds. Those aren't going away. What they're changing is the capitalization structure, essentially, of their closed-end vertical-specific funds to say, hey, you know what, fund manager, we just want you to get into the best companies. And, oh, by the way, with this positioning on Sequoia Fund and not having a 10-year time horizon, this should be a differentiator for Sequoia in the market with the tech startups, right? Because now Sequoia can say, we're the best partner. We're here for the long term. No one else has this fund structure. Or is it no one? I'm going to get to that in a second. You know, you should choose us, not anyone else. Hey, fund managers, just do your job. You don't need to worry about timing the exit. Um, you know, when is the best time to exit the comp- your position in the company? What happens, right? You know, you go raise a fund. You have, you really got to deploy that money somewhat fast first couple of years because then you know the way you do your fund is you make your initial investments and you got to get those out in the first couple of years and then you you save a good chunk of your capital for follow-on investments right so you say yeah you know i put money into 10 companies these few are doing really well let's put more money into those 
you know, and then, and then, you know, some of the companies aren't doing as well. And then you, you don't continue to invest. You just try and get your money back from, from those that aren't doing as well. So you're then doing follow on investments after the first couple of years. And, and that's kind of the cycle. Um, Sequoia is now removing the pressure, the time horizon pressure, and just saying, let's get into the best companies. Let's continue to support the best companies and obviously put more money into those companies. But we don't need to worry as much as saying, oh, well, this company isn't going public as soon as we'd like, or now that they are public, you know, we have to exit our position because our L our LPs want to, you know, get all their money back. Now they're kind of extrapolating away a lot of those kinds of issues or concerns or pressures um, for the reasons that, uh, you know, that Roloff has laid out here. So basically, yes, Sequoia is trying to act like their namesake, a Sequoia tree. If you're not familiar with the Sequoia tree, these things are massive. These things are huge. Uh, and they can actually live to be 3,000 years old. So really trying to uh, live up to the ethos of, of the longevity of the tree um, and, and remove these timelines from their investing horizon. Which is interesting because there's another company which has put a really interesting model together and that's Angelus. So if you look at Angelus, they're an investment marketplace first and foremost. They're also a recruiting, you know, job uh, uh, site as well. There's, you know, a bunch of cool things they're doing with the tech startup community. They they have started as a tech startup, but you know, have been profitable for many many years and are just doing a bunch of really cool things, particularly around capital, but around hiring as well. But this thing is called their rolling fund, which is a new concept. So. Uh, fundraise publicly and continuously. Your LPs subscribe quarterly so you can accept new capital and never need to raise another fund again. So there is this concept. Now, now Angelus could have some negative stereotype. Oh, it's an investment marketplace. It's not as private and exclusive as um, a, you know, a, a Sequoia, which has all these personal relationships and not everyone can get in, right? All these kinds of things. There, there is the same concept of not having a fund horizon. For them, they're saying, hey, you can just have a rolling fund. Investors can just continue to invest. And you never have, never need to raise another fund again. So it's just uh, evergreen, which is somewhat similar to what Sequoia is talking about. doesn't have as much of the, the gravitas and we are Sequoia branding around it, but similar theme in terms of an evergreen fund that investors just pool money into, into one entity. And then that gets split up um, based upon really when investors entered the, the mega fund, right? So I would imagine the way that Sequoia is structuring this is similar because you have investors come into into the Sequoia fund, the mega fund, the meta fund at different time horizons, right? So how do you how do you split up the proceeds? And I think I think that Sequoia looked at uh, what Angelus has done with this with the rolling fund model as a way to certainly inform some of their thinking. It's a little bit different what they're doing, but there are a lot of similarities here. It doesn't talk as much about the, the thing never expiring as Sequoia is putting the emphasis on it, but again, a lot of similarities. 
I am uh, uh, bullish, optimistic about what Sequoia is doing. Um, clearly, these VCs needed to do something with the just huge influx of other capital that's come into the tech startup investing foray. And so I like that they are leading the charge and, and at least trying something and, and doing it in a pretty, pretty big way. Last note, which they touch on right at the end of the article, is that we are also becoming a registered investment advisor. And this expands our flexibility to support portfolio companies, yes, through various financing events. It also enables us to further increase our investments in emerging asset classes such as cryptocurrencies. Interesting. So now they can go, is Sequoia becoming a a crypto investor? That uh, could be an interesting way to just park some cash if they've got cash, you know, just sitting around waiting to be deployed. Maybe now they can just go park it in some uh, emerging altcoins because now they have full discretion. They can do whatever they want with that money. Right there, are, they've they've basically said we are not going to um, tie our hands to how we deploy this money. If you are giving us money, Sequoia Fund, you give us full title to basically do whatever we deem appropriate with your money. That's kind of the new Sequoia pitch. See how it goes. Okay, next topic is the. The Rent the Runway IPO. Um, rent the Runway, Rent the Runway, Runway, say that three times fast. Um, just went public in the past week or so, uh, opened at a, a little over $19 a share, is now down, you know, roughly 15%. You know, there's, a, there's been a lot of hype on this company over the years, a lot of hype, a lot of kind of glitzy names around it. And so now we, you know, we kind of get to see what the goods are around it. Uh, here's the information's article. No profits, no growth. Rent the runway valuation hinges on hope. Yikes. Little, you know, got some teeth here. A little surprising from the information. You would have think they would have softened it a little bit, um, just kind of given the, the ilk uh, surrounding the company. The pandemic has not been kind to end the runway, sending revenue falling 9% over the first half of the year. Company goes public on Wednesday after pricing its IPO at $21 a share. So it priced it at 21, it opened it in the, in low 19. And now it's, so it's actually even down more than 15% if you peg it to the $21. Its revenue was $158 million. So almost a 10X revenue multiple. And the company is not profitable losing $84 million in the first half of this year. Oh, yikes. It's now probably in the, I don't know, seven to $800 million valuation. You take its, its current share price in the mid-16s. Not a platform business. Uh, what they do is they, they buy inventory and then they rent it. You get dresses and other kind of, you know, fashion clothes, you know, if you're going to a party or a wedding, you don't want to spend $600 on a dress, you can rent it for, I guess, like $200 or 150 bucks or something like that, right? Kind of, you know, I feel like Rent the Runway needs to have um, a couple turns of the inventory because they're not buying it for retail if it's a $600 dress, but, you know, a couple turns of the inventory and then hopefully they're paying back that dress uh, if not making a little bit of money, 
once you probably get to three or four turns, then they're they're really making good money on on the kind of per per item basis. But it's not a platform company. Uh, the inventory is on their balance sheet. It's a really difficult model. Um, I've always thought that you know they should. This would be a company that should be trying to embrace a platform model, right? How can it get into, for example, there are these companies. This one I I don't know how they're doing. This one's doing bag borrow or steal, which is uh, renting like designer bags, for example, not clothing. Where kind of weird to like rent someone's clothing and then give it back to them, right? That doesn't really play the same. But this was an interesting one that I, this, if you look at this company as another example here, which is not formally a rental company, right? This company, Rebag, they've raised $100 million in, in capital over the years. They just raised, um, they raised, you know, kind of a couple times here during COVID, they raised in May of, of last year, 2020, at $120 million valuation. They just raised another round at $26 million in May of 21. It's a secondhand, you know, e-commerce, so sales, buying and selling, which we've covered a lot on the show, how, you know, secondhand uh, uh, clothing and fashion marketplaces are all the rave and um, are actually becoming their own industry. Uh, rather than, you know, there's new and then there's secondhand. And I think this is actually the dawn of an entire new industry, which, you know, you would have hoped that a rent the runway would have, would have been on that cutting edge, right? Like why isn't rent the runway capturing the secondhand industry? They've been, they've been like the marquee kind of secondhand company founded, I think back in like 2009. So been around for a long, long time. Really haven't seen much business model innovation out of Rent the Runway, frankly. You'd think that they would have been able to try some things if they're burning over $100 million a year. This year, burning $80 plus million in the first six months of the year. That's a heavy burn. So you'd think you'd have some cycles to kind of um, do some business model innovation. Now, here's the cool thing, though. Right. So this is on Rebag. Now... So this is on the left here, sell your, sell your stuff, get a quick offer. So they're going to, they're going to actually buy it and then resell it genius and use their AI to like give you an instant offer. Love that. And then look at this infinity exchange, turn in any rebag purchase within 12 months for credit worth 70 to 80% of its purchase price to put towards your next. I love this, right? I love I love this. It's saying you buy something secondhand on the site, you sell it back on the site. We'll give you say 70% of the value as a credit. And then you're going to recycle that money back into the platform, right? So as long as you're buying stuff that is holding some of the value, you know, you're not buying like Zara that's going to go bad after you wear it two times, but you're buying stuff that retains some amount of the value. You're already buying it secondhand, so you know it's it shouldn't have a huge drop off in price unless you've really tarnished the thing. But I'm sure they've got like a, a quality control mechanism in here. This Infinity Exchange program is basically renting, but not called renting, right? Sell it back within 12 months. Hmm. Interesting. Get a credit. I mean, it's basically renting. 
but they put the onus on you to put it back into the platform if you don't want it. Yada, yada. I love it. It's basically a renting angle, not calling it renting, recycling all the money within the platform. So has really good lock-in. These are the kinds of things, right, that I'd want to see from a rent to runway. These are the kinds of things that if I'm looking at a linear business, which has good tech, good digital, but is hemorrhaging money, growth is like non-existent. They're actually down on growth and blaming COVID because people aren't going out as much, but people aren't going out as much, but secondhand sale, you know, sale marketplaces are booming. So, Rental is down, but where is the secondhand kind of e-commerce buying and selling play? I mean, this is Rent the Runway site, right? The power of renting. They're all in on renting. You can get a membership, one-on-one time rental, and they're just so stuck in their model. I mean, these guys were high flying in in their first five years, right? Like they were the darling child of the tech media hype bandwagon. And then they've kind of fallen out of vogue. I do think it would have better served to try out some business model innovation. It's all rental all the way, but uh, I would not put money into this. Say that much. Okay. Um, Next topic. So this one I really like Um, marketplaces, enabling retailers. I've talked about this, how there are smaller up and coming Literally, I was just talking about secondhand, secondhand marketplaces becoming their own industry, right? So we've talked about how secondhand marketplaces and manufacturers, brands are partnering and leaving retailers out in the dust. Where are the retailers? What are the retailers doing? How can retailers benefit from marketplaces that could be selling new stuff or used, right? Secondhand stuff. The answer is many ways. And who would have thought in terms of business model innovation, JCPenney is my example for partnering with a marketplace. Look at this. JCPenney taps a B2B online portal, it's, an, it's a marketplace, to grow sales of beauty brands. JCPenney has joined with Landing International. This is a baby startup, uh, by the way. I'm going to talk about it more in a second. A B2B online marketplace for the cosmetics products industry to provide a one-stop shop for beauty brands looking to break into large-scale retailers. Landing International gives smaller beauty brands access to large-scale retail integrations and consolidates sourcing and logistics. Instead of working with multiple beauty manufacturers, JCPenney works directly with Landing to meet its assortment planning, inventory planning, and training needs. Love it. What, do you, what, what asset does JCPenney have? They have demand. They have scale. They have audience. What do consumers, irrespective of what kind of consumer you're talking what do consumers want? They want more choice and they want good prices. What did Jeff Bezos say? I know consumers are always going to want stuff cheaper and they're always going to want more selection, right? Like these things are pretty hallmark wholesale foundational truths. And so JCPenney has partnered with this literally baby startup. There's like no funding information on this startup. I hope, I hope that JCPenney has equity or warrants or something with this startup. If they did not, that is a huge mistake for whoever is negotiating this deal. But how can you partner with a marketplace to do what? If you are a retailer, if you have e-commerce, if you have demand, how can you partner with a marketplace to give you better supply and good prices? And this is a great example of, of doing it actually in a somewhat analog way. It doesn't even sound like the, this, is, this is integrated directly into the JCPenney e-commerce experience. This is just something that the JCPenney buyers 
are going to be using this thing to buy and then stock stuff and put it onto the e-com site or put it into the stores. So this is a super analog integration. This isn't even, doesn't seem like it's even digitally enabled um, for the e-commerce site, right? There's a portal for the JCPenney buyers to use. It's a great baby step example. Um, this is a very seemingly, you know, not too much of a lift type of partnership for JCPenney. And JCPenney ended a merchandising agreement with cosmetics product merchant and brand Sephora. Sephora terminated its store within a store agreement with JCPenney and moved over to Kohl's. And, uh, and then JCPenney has now done this deal with Landing, which I really like this deal. Now, this is just one example. If you are a large retail retailer with a strong e-commerce presence, what have we seen recently? We've seen um, activist investors go after Saks to try and decouple the e-commerce site uh, from the, you know, from the analog store part of the business. Same thing has now just happened with Macy's. This partnership that JCPenney is doing is it going to impact both e-com and analog store, right? JCPenney's ability to negotiate this deal, I don't know how good of a job they did negotiating, but their leverage is a lot stronger when touting both physical retail and e-com, right? That's a much better negotiating standpoint for a JCPenney, for a Macy's, for a Saks, for a Meyer to negotiate with these marketplace startups than if it's decoupled. But the problem is that these retailers have not really shown any true marketplace innovation uh, to, to warrant them kind of keeping both entities attached, right? I mean, what has anyone besides Walmart really done to move the needle? Even Target has been slow and sluggish with their expansion into marketplace. You know, they bought Shipped, haven't really heard much about what's going on with Shipped, even though it looked like a great deal on the surface, haven't really heard much about what's going on with that. You know, there are very fringe examples, but there are so many small to mid-size, and there's certainly large ones, these marketplace startups selling new goods, used goods, um, a whole spectrum of, you know, products, secondhand product that they need scale. And, and everyone's getting crammed down by Amazon and now to a certain extent, Walmart. Why aren't large retailers that have strong e-commerce businesses sucking in the inventory and expanding the supply and product catalog and getting better pricing parity by doing partnerships with marketplaces that need scale? Those marketplaces will give you inventory, will give you better pricing capability, and you don't need to then deal with all the hassle of running your own marketplace, having to launch all your own mark, you know, third-party seller recruitment and management program. Let the marketplace handle that. What are you retailers good at? Having a consistent brand, curating the product selection, and you can work with these marketplaces to do that. This JCPenney deal is a great example of them doing it in an actually very low-tech manner. This is the lowest of low-hanging fruit. There, there's so much opportunity in this space for retailers to work and partner with smaller up-and-coming marketplaces. You just haven't really seen much of it. So if you're not going to do anything with your e-commerce site that's innovative, then yeah, you do deserve for it to be broken off and given to more savvy management. But this is a great example. I love this example. Now, running that script in the other direction, marketplaces are capturing more and more demand. And 
how can other linear providers leverage that opportunity, right? So instead of marketplace integrating into linear, how can linear integrate into marketplace? We've got a great example to highlight exactly what I'm talking about. And that is this, which is unfortunately the linear player is enabling the devil, the devil that is Amazon. Next insurance targets businesses that sell and buy on Amazon. So uh, this is a kind of new up and coming insurance provider called Next Insurance. The insurer is targeting members of Amazon Business Prime that use Amazon as their procurement hub. We believe Next Insurance offering products to Business Prime is another example of how this program provides value and benefits to members. Business Prime members can obtain Next Insurance quotes and then purchase general liability, professional liability, workers' comp, commercial auto, and tools and equipment coverages in cooperation with Amazon. Next Insurance is offering an exclusive 10% discount on general liability and professional liability policies. Um, Next Insurance has raised a lot of money, over $800 million, um, has most recently raised $250 million in March of 2021 at about a $4 billion valuation. CEO of Next Insurance says, we believe the future of insurance buying of the insurance buying experience involves meeting customers where they already are uh, marketplaces, making it easy to purchase customized and affordable policies. Now, here's the other part. So the insurer is also targeting businesses that sell goods and services on Amazon. Amazon requires certain sellers with gross sales of $10,000 a month or more to have insurance. The insurance requirements for sellers, known as Amazon Pro Merchants, includes a million dollars in liability coverage. So now this is a really cool part. You know, on the on the purchaser, on the consumer side of Amazon business, yes, you can sell to these uh, business customers like Applico, you know, professional liability insurance, general liability insurance, give them a little bit of discount. It's a, more of like an affiliate type of relationship between a Next Insurance and an Amazon, right? Um, it's very, very, you know, low lift to, to do something like that. Now, on the supplier, on the producer side, it gets even more interesting. This is where you can start to do like embedded, what I call embedded value-added services. And what I mean by that is you can actually start to have an embedded, say, insurance policy as a part of the marketplace model, as a part of the onboarding experience for sellers who are doing certain volumes on Amazon business, right? On, on Amazon, selling a certain amount of stuff. Now you can have a much more integrated and specialized value-added service, value-added service in this case being insurance um, for these sellers. That's where it gets really interesting, right? Meeting, as, as the CEO of Next Insurance says, we believe the future of the insurance buying experience involves meeting customers where they already are and making it easy to purchase customized and affordable policies. Literally, I think what he's really speaking to are the sellers, and having a really specialized, embedded insurance offering. Now, it doesn't just stop with insurance. Again, linear service providers meeting customers where they are. Where are they? On marketplaces, more and more and more. Um, and providing, uh, what does he say? Customized and affordable, fill-in-the-blank, value-added service. Could be insurance policy, could be financial services, uh, more around financing, could be shipping and logistics, right? What are the key things, what are the key value-added services that every marketplace wants to bolt on once they get to a certain level of scale? 
Simple. Shipping and logistics, fulfillment, and financial services. Payments, financing, insurance. It's literally the same script. We've seen it now for over 25 years. Uh, Those are the two key buckets of value-added services. In every marketplace, once they get to enough scale, they try to make their value proposition stickier, try to get a little bit of extra margin. And how can linear service providers uh, rise to that challenge, that opportunity, and create this customized, uh, what we call embedded value-added service integration into marketplaces that have more and more customers coming to them, both on the demand and supply, the producer side of, of, of the marketplace. Now, doing this with Amazon, the devil, juggernaut, monopoly, you don't really have much leverage if you're next insurance. Where I think it gets really interesting is saying, how do you do this with the unicorns, you know, the single digit billion uh, um, uh, valuation marketplaces that haven't really spread their wings, don't have as much leverage to cram you down, right? Next insurance is, I think, probably doing this at break even. Um, if they're lucky uh, with Amazon, really to try and probably build the name and, 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 you know, they're probably betting on the come saying, well, I'm just viewing this as a customer acquisition play and I'm going to, I'm going to make my money when I sell the next policy to these customers, right? Amazon is cramming these ga- these guys being next insurance all the way down. But to me, if I'm next insurance, my play is now, how do I take this similar model and go do it with the next marketplace? Right where maybe now I can point to the Amazon example. I can point to all the money I've raised, my four billion dollar valuation, and I can now take my learnings from Amazon and and now actually start to make money, but do it with a marketplace that's up and coming, still doing a lot of scale, but not at Amazon level scale and leverage. It's a huge opportunity. I would much more so see it with the up and coming marketplaces to enable not the big, big bad tech monopoly that's Amazon, but a very valuable lesson and pattern for us to spot and then take advantage of. That's it for us on Winner Take All. Thank you so much for joining us. I'll talk to you soon.